We're pretty happy just to go into the scriptures and go from uh, one verse to the next one. Um, But our convention is doing an emphasis on each one reaching one and on who's your one. And so I want to join in with them. And we're actually going to be sharing outlines, which is very outside of the norm for us. But we're going to share with them and then I'm going to add my own flavor to it, if you know what I'm saying. All right. Um, If you're here this morning and you have a bulletin in there. You ought to have a sermon guide that will allow you to follow along and take notes with the sermon. Uh, if you were not able to get, the, get one of those, if you'll hold up your hand and leave it up. Uh, we have some handsome guys. Ex- yeah, handsome, I said, Jonathan, that will make sure that you get one. If I were to ask you this morning to describe what comes into your mind when I say the word Christian, what would you describe? See, the word Christian comes with a lot of baggage, doesn't it? For some of you, when you think of a Christian, you think of a grandmother that is godly and faithful, that is praying for you, and that since before you were even old enough to understand what any of this was about, was always telling you about the Lord and telling you about his faithfulness and telling you about Jesus and telling you about how she had been saved by him. For others of you, when you think about Christians, you think about a hypocritical dad. A dad that told you was a Christian. A dad that that always said that Christianity, his faith, was the foundation of your home. Uh, A dad that maybe when he went to church looked really impressive and had the right clothes and said the right things. Maybe he, he taught Sunday school or was a deacon. But then when it suited him better, he could turn into harsh, mean, cutthroat guy at home, husband, dad, business person. And so when you think about Christian, what you're importing into the word is this idea of a double standard of someone who pretends to be something that they're not. For others of you, when you think of Christian, you think of the people and you're, you're kind of wondering like, where did you park your spaceship, right? Like you're a little bit different. Others of you, you're, you're thinking about a political activist, these group, this group of people that love and live for a good boycott. Maybe you think of something that you're born into, a birthright, a part of your ethnic heritage, part of your culture. For others, being a Christian is something that you're not born into, but something that you're, you, you become over a period of time, something you're born again into, right? Did you know that in the Bible, the word Christian only occurs three times? The word Christian only occurs three times. In fact, the word Christian began as a derogatory insult of the early church. The word Christian, what it literally means is it means these little Christs, right? And so the the Roman culture would begin to to make fun of them and mock them. And they would say, what we have here is a bunch of just mini Jesuses, a bunch of little Christ that are constantly trying to pretend as though he is really the Lord and really the Messiah. And they they threw this term at them as though it was an insult. And the early church said, you know what? We actually like that. We actually like that. We like for people to consider us mini Christ or, or little Jesuses. And so over the years, the term stuck. But much more frequently than the term Christian, the term disciple is used by the early church, by the apostles, to describe who a Christian is and what a Christian does. And so as they would refer to themselves, they would refer to themselves as disciples of Christ. You had the original 12, but then all of those that are brought into the kingdom after them are all considered to be disciples. And that term, in fact, is used 281 times in comparison to the three times that Christian is used. 
And I think that's helpful. I don't think it's, it's bad for us to use the word Christian to describe ourselves. I use that word myself. But I think disciple might be a more helpful word because it's clearer in its understanding, isn't it? If I were to go around our whole community and I were to ask them if they were a Christian, the numbers would be staggering, wouldn't they? The numbers would be staggering. Many of them believe they have been a Christian since before they were born, while they were being carried in their mother's womb. And so if I were to go house to house, though there may be no resemblance of Christ in the home or in the life or in the person, they would say, yes, I am a Christian. But if I were to go around our community and I were to ask them, are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? There would be some hesitation. There would be some hesitation. Matter of fact, perhaps even if I did that same survey among our very congregation here at Iron City, I would get unanimous, yes, I am a Christian, but there would be perhaps pause as you consider and contemplate, am I actually a disciple of Jesus? Because what we understand is that a disciple of Jesus uh, denotes a, a higher degree of devotion, a degree of discipline, a degree of focus, a, a degree of having your, your life and your priorities set in a particular direction and, and calibrated around a particular theme. So that you might say, I am a Christian, but I don't know that I am a disciple. Yet in the New Testament, the terms are synonymous. They are one and the same. A Christian is a disciple and a disciple is a Christian. They cannot be separated apart. And so this morning, that's what we're going to look at. I want us to look at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4? Matthew chapter 4. If you're with us when we preach through Matthew, your Bible probably just falls open to Matthew, right? If you get to Matthew chapter 4, would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? Matthew chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 18 and read through verse 22. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So we come in our text, Jesus is calling his first disciples. In fact, here, three of the four that he calls are what we consider to be the inner circle among the disciples. And so we see here that Jesus is calling the very heartbeat of his discipleship community. And to understand really all the dynamic that's going on, you have to understand what life was like for the first century Jewish family. See, the Jews took religious education incredibly seriously. They took it more seriously than we take education in math and science and languages. That for them, the education of, of their faith, the education of what they had inherited was all history, science. It was everything encompassed into one. It was all of life and it was the difference between life and death. And so very much similar to the way that we do it, at five years old, they, a child, uh, a, a little boy would enter into what they called Torah school. And over the next five years in Torah school, he would focus on the first five books of the Bible. That's what we consider the Torah, or we might call it the Pentateuch, the, the books of Moses. 
And he would, he would study it, and he would understand it. He would hear it lectured on and taught about. He would go home and he would memorize it so that by the time a child was 10 years old, they had the majority of the first five books of the Bible memorized. Well, at 10, there was kind of a, a culling or a, a weeding out process. They would take the top 15 or 20% of the class and they would continue on and they would continue on so that they would study what the Hebrews call the writings and the prophets. They would go on and they would study the, 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 the annals of the kings and they would study uh, the Psalms and the Proverbs. They would study Zechariah and Isaiah and all the, various, uh, all the various writings over the rest of the Old Testament, while the rest of the children, they would go back home and they would do an apprenticeship, most likely with their father. They would learn to fish or they would learn uh, to, to farm and to shepherd. They would learn various trades by which they would ultimately provide for their family and contribute to the community. So you had these, these, this top echelon, the, the intellectual elites, those that the teachers identified with the most potential and the greatest capacity for learning and they would carry on now what you need to understand is that in their day to be a religious scholar to be one that is an expert in the law to be a leader in the synagogue that was like being an astronaut all right like that like that's the that's the job that everybody wants that's that's president of the united states that's ceo of exxon you know like like that's as high up as it gets and so as as uh, a boy would reach of age of about 17 his studies in the law would be completed and he would go then and he would apply to become a disciple of a rabbi and the way that he would become, a, he would apply to be a disciple of the rabbis, he would find uh, rabbis that he, were, he was particularly intrigued by and interested in. And uh, maybe it was, he would uh, kind of think, I don't have a shot of getting in with this rabbi, but, I, but this one I might. You know, like Harvard's off the list, so let me go and apply for Jacksonville State. But he would go and he would, he would sit down at the feet of the rabbi. And by sitting down at the feet of the rabbi, he was showing that he hoped to become a disciple of that particular rabbi and so the rabbi would be there and he would begin to to test him and he would begin to to ask him questions of the scriptures and seek his responses to particular ethical dilemmas of the day and and they would go and they would go back and forth and ultimately the rabbi would take all of those that applied to be his disciples and he would choose those that he believed had the greatest capacity to become like himself those that he believed would be able to answer questions the same way that he answered questions. Those that he believed that would be able to learn the law as he had learned the law. And the rest of them would go back home and they would, they would become tradesmen of some sort. Merchants, perhaps. And they would, the disciples would begin to follow around their rabbi. And as they followed around their rabbi, the goal was to actually step in his steps as nearly as you could step in them. It was to not just learn from him how he would teach the law, but to learn from him his very mannerisms, his way of life, the way that he answered questions, the way that, that he processed logically and rationally and, and biblically. So much so that if a disciple of the rabbi was to teach, you would hardly be able to discern the difference if things had gone well from the rabbi himself being able to teach. So that they would say the compliment of the day was you have the dust of the rabbi on you. You have the dust of the rabbi on you. It means that you are following so nearly in his steps that when he kicks up dust as he walks, it gets on you. 
And so the, the greatest compliment that you could give to one of, his, one of the disciples of a rabbi was that he looked, sounded, was hardly uh, indistinguishable from the rabbi that he was learning. And this is the backdrop of Matthew chapter 4. This is the backdrop of what it means to come and be called as a disciple of Jesus. I want you to think about what it means that these men were fishermen. Think about what it means that these men were fishermen. It means they've already been passed over, doesn't it? It means that they already haven't made the cut. It means they were already considered not to be among the intellectually elite. They were already considered to be disqualified from being experts in the law. Disqualified intellectually. Disqualified from a capacity and ability standpoint to be able to, to go and to be a leader, a prominent member of their society. And that they had been discerned to be uh, mediocre at best, average at best. And yet Jesus goes to them. Jesus calls them. Jesus, Jesus finds them. And Jesus says, I want you to be my disciple. They didn't come and sit down at his feet. They didn't apply to be disciples. Jesus went and he, he called them and he said, I want you to come and to follow me. Now think about this. Jesus is assembling a team that he is intending to use to transform the world. Jesus is assembling a community of disciples that he intends to build a church from, to start a movement from, that will ultimately revolutionize the way that people understand how they relate to God and how God relates to them and how they can be joined and reconciled, how he is going to start and establish something that even 2,000 years after the fact, we are still gathered in his name, doing, teaching the same things that he was teaching. And he chose the B team. He went and recruited the B team. All the scholars were in Egypt where the books were, but he didn't go to Egypt. All the philosophers like Socrates were in Athens. He didn't go to Athens. The, the most powerful people, some of the most powerful people in the history of the world, you might have heard of them, the Caesars, they were in Rome, but he didn't go to Rome. No, Jesus went to a bunch of fishermen mending their nets with leaky boots in Galilee. And he says, I want you to be my disciples. I want you to follow after me. I want you to go where I'm going. See, Jesus chooses the willing, not the best. Jesus chooses the willing, not the best. In fact, Jesus comes to them and he says, I know what they say about you. I know that you were disqualified. I know that you were unable. I know that you were not intellectually elite. I know that you were the outcast, the rejects from the scholarship of the day, but you don't have to worry about that. Why? I'll do the making. Do you see that? I will make you. I will transform you into who I have for you to be. I will prepare you for the work that I have cut out for you. I will make you into a fisher of men. I will develop you and transform you so that those that passed over you, those that rejected you, those that didn't want you will not even be able to recognize you because you'll be indiscernibly different from me. You come to me and I will make you. See, Jesus, every time, passes over those that are most giving, for, or most gifted for those who are most willing. Every single time. 
that because the kingdom is not built by man's wisdom and the kingdom is not built on man's intellect and the kingdom is not built with man's strength. No, the kingdom is built for the glory of God, by the power of God, through the people of God. And so if you believe that you're smart, you're, not, you're, not, you're too smart to be used by the Lord. If you believe that you are, too, you are strong enough, you are too strong to be used by the Lord. In fact, not a single one of you, not a single one of you is disqualified from serving as a disciple of Jesus. Not a single one of you is too weak. Not a single one of you is too dumb. Not a single one of you is too bad of a, of a test taker. Not a single one of you has too checkered of a past. Not a single one of you is, uh, is, has too little Bible knowledge to be used by the King of glory for the advantage of his name, none of those things disqualify you from the task. The only thing that disqualifies you is if that you actually believe you're able enough. If you actually believe that you can do it. See, I think that's the point of what he's driving home in Matthew chapter 11. You remember in Matthew chapter 11, that's when John the Baptist's disciples, they go and, and they seek after you. We talked about that a few weeks ago, actually. And they, they, they say, are you really the one? And do you remember how he describes John the Baptist? He says, this is the greatest man ever born of a woman. That's all of them, right? That's all of them. That out of all the men that have ever been born, out of all the men that have ever taught God's word, out of all of the prophets that have ever uttered on behalf of God, there is none that is greater than this one. But, but, the one who is least in my kingdom, the one who is least in my discipleship community, the one who is considered the least able, the least smart, the least strong, the least impressive, the least charismatic, is greater than John the Baptist. Greater than John the Baptist. You know, when I think about that, a lot of times I think about myself. You ever just feel that way? Like out of 2,000 years of God building his kingdom through Jesus, out of, out of, out of all the, the Christians that are around Calhoun County and all the ones that are around the United States and all the ones that are, are around the world, there are a lot of weeks where I think I am least of all. Like, I don't get what you're trying to say here sometimes, Lord. And I look and I feel like a lot of times in my life, I have this ritual I go through where, Lord, I am so sorry. I have failed you again. I have not picked up the scripture. I have not prayed as I ought. I have not sought after. I have, I have found myself consumed with thoughts of the world. And here I am supposed to deliver the word. And Lord, again, please forgive me. Again, oh Lord, I devote myself to you. Again, oh Lord, I turn away. There's got to be somebody more able. There's got to be somebody more worthy of his name than that. But do you know what he says? Because the Spirit of God has dwelled me. Because the Spirit of God has rested upon me. Because the Spirit of God has indwelled you. And because the Spirit of God is resting upon you. The Spirit of righteousness. The Spirit of power, the spirit of self-control, the spirit of patience, the spirit of kindness, the spirit of gentleness, the spirit of love, the spirit of anointing and conviction and salvation and devotion. The spirit of God is living in us and he's living in me. And so as great as John the Baptist was, as he preached as a wild man down in the wilderness, you and I have a greater anointing from the Lord than he Lowly as we are, we are greater in the kingdom. Why? 
Jesus is doing the making. Jesus, through his spirit and his word, in me and in you, is doing the making so that we are utterly transformed. And so the question this morning is not, are you able? The question is, are you willing? Are you willing? It's not, can you? It's, will you? The Spirit of God is in you. And Jesus has come to you and he has come to me. The B team of all the world. The rejects of our own society. The outcasts in our own community on the outskirts of nowhere. And he is saying, will you follow me? Will you follow me? Next thing I want you to see is that Jesus does the choosing, not us. Jesus does the choosing, not us. Remember how we said that they applied to be the rabbi, they applied to the rabbis, but are these men applying to be disciples of Jesus? No! They smell like fish! You almost imagine that when the preacher walks by, these sailors are cleaning up their language a little bit, don't you? Like these are, are crusty guys. These are guys that had calloused hands. These are, these are men that, that smelled of fish, that had spent the night working, were, were going and, and through all the processes that, that needed to be done so that they would be able to go out and, and fish again tomorrow and be able to have everything that they needed and provided for them and provided for their families, that they would be able to, to take care of, the, of, of every. This is their livelihood, right? So they're not concerned about studying rabbis. They gave up that dream a long time ago. You know how you, you start out as a kid? And the other day, Megan asked Gracie, said, what do you want to be when you grow up, sweetheart? She said, I either want to be a teacher or an astronaut. <laughs> I'm so glad you want to be a teacher, baby. You know? Um, and, and that's how we start off, though, right? Like, I, I remember being a youth pastor one time and having a junior high boy in my, in my class. And I, I, I said, well, what do you want to do, man? Well, like, what, 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 what are you thinking for the future? He says, I want to be a professional basketball player. I said, well, hey, did it occur to you you're not on a basketball team? I want to start there. I said, so, let, I said, so let, let's think through a backup plan. And he thought about it for a second. And y'all, I, if I'm lying, I'm not. He was as serious as he could be. He said, what do you have to do to be a ninja? <laughs> a ninja? A ninja? But that's how we all do, that's how we all do, isn't it? We grow up and we start out with all of these aspirations and all of these dreams. And you can imagine for the disciples, it was the same way. They had all of these dreams about being among the religious elite, about being a, a member of the Sanhedrin and all the prominence that it would bring and the way they would elevate their family name and be able to do all. But they've given up on that a long time ago. That's all in the past now. They're grown men. They know that the alarm goes off every morning at 4 a.m. and every morning at 4.15, they actually get up. They know that. They know that, that they need to pack their lunch, but they're not going to pack their lunch, so they're just going to go hungry and eat a Snickers at lunchtime, right? They know this already. They've, they've already gotten into the minutia of life and have begun just plodding through, through day by day. But there they are, mending their nets. There they are, fishing, just doing another day, living another, another boring, monotonous day. And Jesus comes to them. Jesus comes to them. You see, Jesus didn't settle for the B team. Jesus sought out the B team. Jesus didn't settle for the B team. Jesus sought out the B team. The way that the, the rabbis, the way the process, the re, one of the reasons that the process worked as it did was because it was difficult to be a disciple of a prominent re, rabbi. It did require a lot of discipline. It required focus and concentration. It, it, you can imagine how difficult it would be to memorize the prophecy of Isaiah. 
And so they were, it, was, it was incredibly strenuous, and it was incredibly taxing. And there would come a point, inevitably, for every disciple where they would say, I can't do this. This, this is beyond my capacity. This is beyond my ability. But part of the reason the process was set up as it was was so that those disciples could remember, but the rabbi saw something in me. The rabbi thinks that I can do it. The rabbi thinks that I'm able, and it would bring them confidence so they would answer the bell and step up and, and read another chapter and go over their note cards one more time. Think about the relationship that you have with Jesus. Think about it. We get freaked out by the word chosen. We get freaked out. But, and I don't even know theologically how you, how you reconcile the hows and, uh, of this great mystery. But what I know is, is that we are running from this word and the apostles ran to it. The apostles ran to it every time they needed confidence. They would say, I can't do it. I am unable to keep going. I am unable to persevere. But Jesus has chosen me. Jesus has chosen me. Jesus has chosen you. Not because you're great. Not because of some potential that he sees in you. Jesus has chosen me and Jesus has chosen you because it is through you that he is funneling his own glory. It is through you that he is funneling his own power. It is through you that he is funneling his own majesty, his own wonder, his own grandeur. So that every day you wake up and you think, I just can't do it again today. I cannot study again today. I cannot evangelize again today. I cannot go to work and live as a Christian with that boss. One more day, I'm throwing it in. And you think, but Jesus has chosen me. Jesus is enabling me. Jesus is making me. Jesus is transforming me. This was the hope that the apostles would go to again and again as the ministry got hard, as Christians were being transformed into martyrs. They again and again would go to this fact, but God, God has sought us out. God has found us when we were not seeking him. No, no one is righteous, not one. No one is seeking after Christ, except Christ is seeking after us. So we can say, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you feel your spine stiffening? Do you feel your confidence rising as you face down the barrel of the Christian life and you remember? Remember, it's not dependent on you. It's not about how strong you are. It's not about how tough you are. It's not about how good you are. It's about being full of Christ, filled with the Spirit, pressing on in the mission that we have given to us. See, our confidence falters because our faithfulness falters. Isn't that why your confidence in the Lord shakes up? Because you understand how unfaithful you are? He said, yeah, I know. He can save everybody, but you don't know my story, bro. I know that he can work through anybody, except he's never met anybody as lazy as I am, right? 
And, and we hear all these responsibilities that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to disciple our children and reach our community and build a church among the nations. We're supposed to be his witnesses at work and his witnesses at school. We're supposed to, to love him with our, our money and love him with our time and still raise up our kids. And at the end of the day, we're just so tired. And we understand that as badly sometimes as we want to honor the Lord, we just don't. We just don't. And so our confidence begins to erode because our faithfulness is already eroded. So how can we have confidence for the task? How can we have confidence that we can accomplish anything for Jesus' glory? It's because of what Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. It's because of what Paul says to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 10, when he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, Jesus has chosen you to accomplish a task that cannot fail. Jesus has called for you to build a church that cannot be stopped. Jesus has called you to do a work he already knew you were going to do beforehand, before the foundations of the earth. You were designed, you were engineered, you were put together, and you were empowered by the Spirit of God to walk and to live for the glory of God. And you have been chosen to do it, church. You have been chosen to do it. I can tell you that if I did not believe this with all of my heart, I would not still be your pastor. I can tell you that. 1,000%. I wish I could count the number of days that I have woke up and I have thought, but Jesus called me and Jesus promised me, so let's do it. That's what discipling your children is going to require of you. That's what teaching your connection group every week is going to require of you. That's what being a faithful deacon is going to require of you. That's what being a witness at work is going to require of you. Every day, waking up, I don't feel like it. I don't think I can. I don't think I'm able. But Jesus is in me, and Jesus has done the choosing. I didn't choose him. Next, I want you to see that following Jesus requires you to forsake all. Following Jesus requires forsaking all. Notice that it says, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So throughout the New Testament, as you read the word immediately, again, as it comes up over and over, what you discover is that often the word immediately is used to show the authority of Jesus, the the sovereignty of Jesus. So Jesus is in a boat and the storm comes and it rocks against the boat and it looks like it's going to cause the boat to, to sink. And Jesus speaks and what happens? Immediately. Immediately the the waters are as flat as glass. And then do you remember what he says? Immediately the boat gets to the other side of of the shore, doesn't it? Immediately. To show that he has power over the storm. To show that he has power over the creation. He has power over the boats. A man comes to him and he's struck with leprosy unclean, unfit, can't even be a part of the society, can't even go and hug his kids and be kissed by his wife, not accepted, turned away at the door of the temple. He comes to Jesus and Jesus tells him to be clean. And what happens? He says, immediately, immediately he is healed. 
He has power over sin. He has power over death. He has powerful over, power over impurity. He is sovereign over all of these things. And by the sound of his voice, he is able to lay all of those things down. Is there any wonder that when he walks up to these men that hardly know him and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, that they hear the authority of his voice. They know the sovereignty of his call and they drop down everything and begin to follow after him. Think about the things that it says. It, it talks about how they're, they're there in the boat and then they leave the boat behind. It, it tells us that they're mending the nets and they just drop the nets there and they go. They're, uh, they're, they're with their father Zebedee and they say, hey, pops, peace out. You're gonna have to handle the business. We got to go. There's a reason. There's a reason. When, when you're studying the scriptures, one of the things that you need to always ask is why out of all the details, there's a lot more that happened in the story, just FYI. Why, out of all the details of this story, did, did Matthew include these particular ones? Because Matthew's wanting us to see something. What are the two things that are the greatest barriers to us fully committing ourselves to Jesus? What, what are the two things that we are, are tempted by to, to re uh, to, to set all of the priorities in our lives? It's the way that we make money and it's our families and relationships, isn't it? The, the, those things in our lives that we're, we're tempted to place ahead of Jesus when it comes to making decisions, those, those things that we're, we're tempted to prioritize over our time with Christ, it's, it's taking care of the kids and making sure that the Captain Crunch isn't soggy and, and making sure that you, you get to your job okay and making sure that your, your husband has everything that he needs and your wife is, is loved and engaged and all of those things. And, and he's here and he's saying that, look, out of all of the relationships in your life, out of your pursuit of livelihood, and, and to care for yourself that what you have to have if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus is a willingness to say that Jesus is above them all. Jesus is above them all. That all of them brought into the light of who Jesus is, your, your treasures and your beloved, all of them pale in comparison to who Jesus really is. That is that Jesus is to take the decision-making spot in your life. He is to be the decisive, the decisive relationship, the decisive, the decisive call over everything else. So that whatever you say Jesus versus, Jesus always wins. If it's Jesus versus your boyfriend, Jesus wins. If it's Jesus versus your daddy, Jesus wins. If it's Jesus versus your boss that oversees your promotion, Jesus wins. If it's Jesus versus the house that you live in, Jesus wins. That whatever there is in your life that comes into competition with Christ, you are to say that Christ is above all and Christ is preeminent in all. And so I am willing to forsake anything in my life that Jesus might be glorified. Not long ago, John was uh, baptizing a teenager that came and wanted to, to have faith in Jesus. And he'd been sharing and he knew that this teenager had basically no history in the church whatsoever, of any church whatsoever. And, and John asked him if he wanted to be baptized and he could tell him that there was, there was a little bit of hesitation, but, but the young man agreed. After he was baptized, the, general, the young man told John, he said, you know what, my parents were disappointed when I became a Christian. My parents were disappointed when I told them I was going to be baptized. In fact, now my parents have forbid that I come back to the church at all. He said, but I wanted to be baptized because Jesus said to be baptized. 
Jesus versus mom and dad. Mom and dad is a God-given, God-ordained authority in our life. But when, is it, when, it comes into, when they come into competition with, with Jesus, and you're a disciple of Jesus, Jesus is the decision maker in your life. I have friends who God called over to the mission field. Oh, and, 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 and mom and dad, I plead with you that if this happens, if God shows you this grace in your family, you would react differently. They, that God had called them to the mission field. And mom and dad, grandmom and granddad in this situation, they made life miserable because they were taking the grandkids and moving them over to Africa. And over and over they would tell them and guilt them and tell them how they're ruining the lives of their children except, except the greatest thing in the life of a child is to see Christ. To see Christ. It's not to have a 3,000 square foot home. It's not to ride a dirt bike. It's not to graduate from the University of Alabama. It's to see Christ glorified, crucified, risen and exalted. And so you know what they did? They had to look back and say, Mom and Dad, the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life is to go against something that you would wish for me. But Jesus wishes for something greater. Jesus wishes for something greater. For you, what would it take for you to pull back in your relationship with Jesus? If you got the right boyfriend today, would, would you be willing to lessen your commitment to Christ and his church? If you knew that your child could get a scholarship playing a particular sport at a particular college, would you be willing to forsake their spiritual development that they might be a better ball player? If you could have the job of your dreams and the salary that you write for yourself and be in the position and living in the city that you could have, but all you had, all that was required of you was to give more to your job and less to Jesus, would you be willing? Who, in other words, is in the decision-making spot of your life? Who is the priority setter for you? Are you a disciple of Jesus willing to forsake it all so that you would say, let the dead bury the dead. A man must hate his mother and hate his father if they are to follow after Jesus. That is, they are to love Jesus with such a radical devotion that in comparison, it would look like hatred in comparison to the same passion and love. And finally, following Jesus leads to others following Jesus. Following Jesus Leads to others following for Jesus. So Jesus, Jesus is making us, right? Jesus is choosing us. Jesus is at work in us. Jesus is setting the priorities of our life. And yet Jesus has told us what the vision is for our lives. Jesus has established for us what the mission is for us. He says that I'm not just going to make you into something good. I'm not just going to make you into something Christian. I'm going to make you into something specific. That is, you don't get to decide the vision for your life. Jesus has already done that. Jesus has already established the vision for your life. The vision for your life is that you would be a fisher of men. He is making you into something specific. He is forming you as his disciple to draw near to him so that the dust off of his feet is all over you so that you are emulating his mannerisms and emulating the way that he would respond to situations and emulating his passion for the nations so that you would go 
you would go and you would make disciples of all nations. You would make disciples as Jesus has made disciples. That's how he said you would know that you are his disciples, by whether or not you are bearing the fruit of the kingdom. And the fruit of the kingdom is the expansion of the kingdom. The fruit of the kingdom is disciples within the kingdom. The fruit of the kingdom is the plentiful harvest coming to reap through the advancement of the gospel in his church. See, when I was 14 years old, Jesus came to me. Jesus came to me. I was an arrogant, short, snot-nosed punk. <laughs> Not just amen right there. <laughs> but Jesus came after me. And Jesus came looking for me. I wanted to live for myself. That's a battle I'm still fighting. I had no thoughts of the grandeur of God. I could hardly string three sentences together in a class presentation. And Jesus came to me. And Jesus saved me. And Jesus made me a preacher. A year after that, Jesus came to my daddy. And he saved my daddy. Everything in our house changed. Everything was made new. Jesus came to Red Road 55 and he found the hells. And do you know how he found the hells? Through his church. Through his church. You see, brothers and sisters, we are the method of the advancement of the gospel. We are the method of the building of the kingdom. We are the method that Jesus is using to find the living stones from which he will build his kingdom. We, me, and you are the method as incompetent as we are, as foolish as we are, as sinful as we are, as weak as we are. Christ has come and he has come to us that he must go, might go through us to our community and to advance the gospel throughout Calhoun County into the ends of the earth. So yeah, we can't do this, but he can. We find in ourselves resistance, but he is willing Church, are you willing? Are you willing? So here's what we're asking you to do this year. I want you to think through, first of all, in the last five years, who's in the kingdom because of you? Who's in the kingdom because of you? And I want you to ask yourself, if it's nobody, Jesus does the saving, but is there nobody in the last five years that Jesus would save through me that I know? Nobody? So this year, let's, let's endeavor before the Lord by his grace, by his power, by his majesty, for his glory to do differently than that. I want you to think of one name, one name, one person that you can go and you can find with the gospel and to bring them into the kingdom. One person that you, want, you, you intend to do everything by your power to bring to faith this year. One name that you intend to every single day in prayer bring before the throne of God. One name that you intend to have lunch with and breakfast with and coffee with. One name that you intend to love well at work and to share the gospel with the world. One name that you intend to invite to church and invite back to church and invite to church again that they might hear the gospel one name. Who's your one? Who's your one? Because you see, God has uniquely equipped you, and he has 
sovereignly placed you so that you can reach people that I can't reach, so that you can reach people that Mark can't reach and that Alan can't reach. So who's your one? And this morning, I wonder if maybe you're the one. I wonder if maybe you're the one. I wonder if this morning you would say, I have lived all of my life believing I was born as a Christian, believing that I was Christian by birthright, believing that I was Christian because I did good things and came to church occasionally, believing that I was a Christian because I knew who Jesus was and I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. But in my life, there is no evidence that I am actually a disciple of Jesus. And I wonder this morning if you would come and you would humble yourself before the Lord Jesus and you would say, Jesus, come in and be the center of my life. Be the decision maker in my life. Save me and transform me. Oh, I wonder this morning if Jesus has come and he has found you today do not do not do not leave again as though it is just another thing it is supernatural work of the almighty if you feel the conviction of the spirit in your life this morning we're going to have men down here that want to receive you if you want to just check on the back of the card and put in the offer plate to, 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 that you would like more information on salvation or coffee that are we will follow up with you this week this week but respond Respond to the gentleness, the kindness of our Lord. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.